Well, since the beginning of May, we've been uh, spending our, our Sundays together in First and Second Kings, looking at least at some of the narrative uh, about Elijah and Elisha, these great Old Testament prophets uh, to Israel. And our, and our goal, as we stated at the outset, is not simply to look at the lives of Elisha uh, and Elijah but really, in a sense, to look, to look through them and beyond them even to see uh, the Lord Jesus Christ more clearly, more fully, because it's to him that they point. It's, it's only in Christ that the ministries of Elijah and Elisha have any significance, any lasting value. So today, as we conclude the series, uh, which is, by the way, what we're doing, concluding that, this series on Elijah and Elisha, uh, interestingly, uh, as a footnote, it seems like uh, the, in the last week, every time I hear uh, a minute, it's a little exaggerated, but very often I've heard ministers in the last few weeks say they're currently preaching uh, the lives of Elijah and Elisha. It's just interesting. But we, we've been doing that. We're concluding that today. But the way we're going to do that is by moving past Elijah and Elisha and actually looking uh, at one of the parables of Jesus that I think is a fitting conclusion to the series. So um, I'd like to ask if you would open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find the text printed for you in the bulletin uh, so that you can follow along, which would be very helpful. The, the parable that we'll read is a familiar one. It's a very simple parable. It doesn't require a ton of explanation. It's very simple. It's also very confrontational. And in its simplicity and its confrontation, it really highlights, or as to say, Jesus really highlights the urgent importance of your response to Him. That's why this parable is here to emphasize the urgent importance of our response to Jesus. Now, as a matter of fact, there will be only one of two responses possible to this parable. You will either hate this parable and hate Jesus for telling it, or you will marvel at the love and the grace of God that's made so plain and, and available in the Jesus who tells this parable. Those are the only two responses. They were, they were the only two then. They are the only two now. Now, before we read this parable, uh, because we're, we're dropping in uh, in the middle of the action, uh, a little reminder of background could be helpful. At this point in Mark's gospel, we're less than a week away from Jesus's crucifixion. Uh, if you were to turn the page backwards one time, you would see the account of the triumphal entry. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem uh, in triumph, uh, being acclaimed as the true king, yet in humility, and certainly misunderstood. And juxtaposed with this acclaim is great conflict and opposition as it begins to, to crescendo, to swell, to increase in Jesus' life. In fact, right before this parable, Jesus has just, in a very shocking way, with his disciples, 
in numerous ways pronounced judgment in his actions and his words. He's pronounced judgment on the leaders of Israel because of their persistent faithlessness and fruitlessness. He's condemned them. He's pronounced judgment upon them. He's said things to do that, and he's done things to confirm what he said. He's pronounced judgment on them. Because underneath a religious facade, they had hearts that were cold and hard to God. They were fakes. They were phonies. But Jesus wasn't fooled. And so he's calling them out, rebuking them. And of course, in rebuking them, he was saying something that everybody needed to hear. Because it was a danger for all of them. We've seen that was a danger in the days of Elijah and Elisha. There were people in Israel who heard from the prophets, who worshipped in the temple, who heard a word from God, whose hearts were far from him. It was a danger then. It was a danger in the day when Jesus told this parable. It's something that each of us faces here in our own day. We may fool others. We may even fool ourselves. But we do not fool God. So Jesus has condemned these leaders. They respond in anger. Who do you think you are? Where do you get off doing these things? And the parable that we're going to read and consider today is Jesus' answer to them. It's his answer to their challenges. And so as we read this parable, I want us to consider very carefully what Jesus says by asking ourselves an important question. Is Jesus talking to me? Is Jesus telling this parable against me? That, that won't be the case, I expect, for all of us in the room. It may not even be the case for most of us in the room, but it may well be the case for some of us in the room. Now, why do I put it that way? I put it that way because we'll see in this parable that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, Mark tells us, perceived that Jesus was telling this parable against them. So I think it's reasonable for us to say, are there any of them in this room? Are there any of us here to whom Jesus is directing this parable? We need to ask that question. So let's read Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed again. He sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard, 
what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. There are four characters in this parable that we need to be alert to, aware of. First, there's the man who planted a vineyard. That's God. Then there are the tenants to whom he leases the vineyard. It's very common in the ancient world for landowners to own land in places where they didn't live. In such cases, they would uh, lease that land out to tenants who would farm and work that land, who would benefit from some of its profits. But the, the, the lord of, the, of the, the land, the owner, also expected to receive some produce from the land. So you have the owner, you have the tenants who are given trust of the vineyard. In this case, these are the leaders and rulers of Israel to whom and against whom Jesus is telling this parable. So you have the owner, you have the tenants. Third, you have the servants whom the owner sends into the vineyard because he wants to uh, approach the tenants and say, okay, where's, where's my produce? Where are my grapes? These are the prophets, the servants of God, the prophets who he sends to his people, as we'll see in this parable. And then finally, there's the son that he sends in the end, Jesus. It's a very simple structure to the parable, actually. But with this parable, what we need to see, first of all, is that Jesus is telling the whole history uh, of his covenant with his people. He's telling in this really tight, compressed form the whole history of his relationship with Israel, with his people. Now, you see, first of all, Jesus speaks of Israel as God's vineyard. This is an image that uh, the prophets had used often, most um, notably in Isaiah chapter 5. Listen to the first two verses of Isaiah 5. Isaiah, speaking, says, Let me sing for my beloved, the Lord. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Isaiah singing a love song to the Lord about the Lord's people, his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it. There's, there's planting, there's clearing, there's establishing, there's preparation, there's care. Everything is ready, everything is done. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. You see what this means? You see what Isaiah is saying? This is the imagery Jesus is bringing up in this parable. We need to understand it. God made Israel. That's one of the points. God made Israel. They didn't establish themselves. They couldn't take credit for what had been done. God established them. He called them. He brought them out of Egypt. He planted them in the land, drove out their enemies, set up everything necessary for their flourishing, their fruitfulness. He sent uh, prophets and priests to them. He set kings over them. He gave his word to them. He, in the sacrificial system, promised and displayed his grace to forgive their sins. 
He promised to be their God. He promised they would be His people. He did everything. He did everything for them. He established them. And He did it so they would bear fruit for Him. So they would live for Him. So they would, would give some return to Him for His love. But they didn't do that. They didn't bear fruit for Him. When He came to bear fruit, when He came to gather fruit from His people, there was nothing. There was nothing to profit from. There was no fruit. There was no life, no joy, no love. But despite all God's kindness, despite all of God's kindness, Israel rebelled against God. They're like a vineyard that doesn't produce grapes. Worthless vineyard. And so instead of listening to Him and loving Him and obeying Him, they made up their own rules. They lived life in their way. They rejected those God sent to rescue them. They killed the prophets. Jesus actually laments and mourns over this in the days leading up to his crucifixion. Matthew records it in chapter, thir- uh, chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to it. This is how God's people had responded to the prophets sent by God. But what's so amazing, as Jesus continues to rehearse and and capture in this parable, what's so amazing is that despite Israel's repeated, not occasional of course, but repeated, like you and me, repeated betrayal, repeated unbelief, repeated spiritual adultery, God doesn't quit on His people. He doesn't abandon them. He continues to send servants. It's actually a striking thing in this parable. What owner would send a servant, have him beat and sent away empty-handed, and then send another servant, and have him struck in the head and treated shamefully, and then send another servant, and have him killed, and then send a son to his death? See, the shocking thing is that God continues lovingly and patiently to send His servants to His people to call them to return. One, and then another, and then another, and then many others, like Elijah and Elisha that we've been studying. And in fact, that's part of the very point that in everything we've seen in the lives of Elijah and Elisha, we're seeing not only the chronic sin of God's people, but we're seeing what else? The steadfast, persistent, faithful love of God who has pledged Himself to a wayward bride. And He will not stop pursuing her until He takes her in His hands. But over and over, these prophets were hated and rejected by the people of God who refused to listen to them. And in many cases, they even murdered them. And yet, as I've already referred to and as we've already read, and you can look again at verses 6 and 7 and 8, God's not done. He sends His only Son, His beloved Son. And He says, surely, as I send the one who bears My name, who, who represents Me, who comes with My authority, surely they will respect My Son. It's not that God certainly don't think that God is somehow surprised. God knows full well He sends His Son to die. But the owner of the vineyard sends His Son. God sends His own Son to His people. 
You see what Jesus is saying? I mean, remember, Jesus is standing here speaking this parable to people. He's talking about what they're doing right now to him, what they're thinking right now about him. He's saying, look, your ancestors are guilty of killing the prophets. But it's even worse for you. Because not only do you have the blood of the prophets on your hands, you have the murder of God's Son in your heart. God sent His own Son. But as we read in John 1, 11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. So what would God do? As we continue to follow this parable, what would God do now? What would happen now? These people that Jesus is talking to were actually living. They were actually acting as if, well, God's far away. He's distant, like the, like the landlord, the owner in the parable. He's far away. Uh, now, maybe they weren't consciously thinking this way, but maybe you can identify with this way of living. It's a sort of living that acts functionally as if God is far away and doesn't see and won't act. And it's utter foolishness to think that I can live in a certain way and God is, God's way over there. He's far away. He doesn't see what I'm doing. There won't be any consequences for this. What's going to happen? This is how they were living. But Jesus has another message for them. You see, In verse 9, he proposes the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And then he provides the answer. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Give the inheritance of Israel to the Gentiles. God was going to lop off some of these branches in the vineyard and graft in some new branches, bring Gentiles into his church. If you want to have a better understanding of this, go read Romans 9 and 10 and 11. Jesus has done this. He's done the very thing that he told in this parable. And Paul went to great length to write about it in those three chapters. But in all of this, the men who were hearing Jesus' parable were in for a huge surprise as we see as Jesus quotes Psalm 118. That was a great um, setting of Psalm 118 that, that the musicians did a few minutes ago. The stone the builders rejected, the stone the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. It's become prominent. It's become the prominent stone in God's building. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. You see what's happening? Jesus, remember, he's telling them these things before they've even unfolded. They are casting him aside as worthless and unimportant, as invaluable. That's how they're dealing with Jesus. People still deal that way with Jesus all the time. People treat Jesus. They think of Jesus. They respond to Jesus as if he's unimportant, as if he's, you know, nice. But not that big a deal. The stone the builders rejected. Who are the builders? Those who have been given leadership in Israel. Those who... who, who knew God's word to some degree, they set Jesus aside, but God set him in place and is setting him in place. And so the, the, the shock is that the one they cast aside as worthless and invaluable, through this terrible rebellion, God does what? He actually extends his eternal salvation 
to the nations of the world. To all who call upon the name of Christ, bear the fruit that God is looking for. They would kill Jesus, but they could not destroy him because God would raise him up and exalt him over the whole world. Now, think about this. That's the parable. It's very simple. As Jesus was telling the parable, he was looking into the faces of the people he was describing. It's really, it's chilling. Imagine that I'm telling this really pointed uh, parable that I have made up to illustrate a point, and it's a very confrontational parable, and you're sitting there, and as I'm looking at you, you're realizing, oh, this is not just a story. He's talking to me. Jesus is looking in the faces of the people that he was describing. He knew that they despised him. He knew that they were planning to kill him. So he used this parable to confront them about what they were doing. And they knew it. They got it. You know, some parables you read through the Gospels and people are puzzled, right? They think, what, what is he talking about? Even the disciples will ask, what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? No confusion here. Verse 12, look at it again. At the end of all of this, we're told, and Matthew and Luke also tell us this in their account of this parable. They perceived. I don't know if Mark was trying to be ironic or anything with this kind of language. I, whenever I read this, I'm like, oh, yeah, very perceptive. <laughs> um, they finally <laughs> perceived something. They perceived that he was telling this parable against them. They knew. They knew that Jesus was claiming, in, in a veiled way, but they knew Jesus was claiming to be God's son. They knew Jesus was telling them he had been sent by God to gather fruit from his people. They knew, they understood, they heard Jesus as he accused them of plotting his murder. They understood that Jesus was telling them that God would judge them for what they were doing. And none of that knowledge changed them. They were hardened by what they understood, by what they perceived. It didn't change them. In fact, it made them hate him all the more. And friends, that's how it works with all of us, apart from the softening, saving work of the Holy Spirit. There's no knowledge that can save. There's no perception that can save. But all, apart from God's grace, would simply lead us to hate God more and more. This is what sinful human beings do. Given the opportunity, we would kill our Creator. Given the opportunity, we would put our hands on the Son of God, love incarnate, the perfect Son of God. We would put our hands on Him and murder Him. And until you and I reckon with that reality of our nature apart from God's grace, we, we won't be able to hear the good news or respond to it. it. But you know, it's even worse because even in that predicament, as God sends people into our lives, He sends people, and you know how this works, He sends people into our lives to warn us to call us back to Christ that we would live. And what, what, what are we prone to do? How are we prone to treat those who come on a rescue mission from God into our lives? 
We treat them like the tenants treated the servants. We treat them shamefully. We ignore them. We turn the blame back on them. We disregard their message. We refuse to examine ourselves. We refuse to listen. Now let me ask you today, this morning, what about you? You know, that's one of the most painful things for any of us here who are involved in in any kind of ministry to other people. Is to have that privilege of being sent into someone's life. And many of you know this privilege. To be sent into someone's life as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ into their trouble. And to be either probably not literally, but at least figuratively, struck over the head and sent away empty-handed. It's a great tragedy and it's a great sorrow. But the question here, what about some of you? How are you treating those that God has sent into your life to point you to Christ, to call you to Him? It could be It could be a pastor, it could be a campus minister, it could be an elder or a deacon, it could be a parent. It could be a child, it could be one of your own children that God has sent into your life to be that ambassador for Jesus Christ in your life that you desperately need. Maybe it's a Christian friend, a roommate, a co-worker. Maybe it's not a person, maybe it's a set of circumstances, maybe it's some deep trial or sorrow in your life that's no accident, but God has placed it there as his messenger to you. Maybe it's not a deep sorrow, maybe it's a great blessing, but it's also intended to be a a messenger from God. But the point is, how are you responding to the messengers of God in your life? Are you listening? Of course, the messenger is Jesus. So how are you responding to him? What do you not want him to say to you? What do you not want to hear from him? What thing has he said that you do not want to do? Well, there's a very clear warning in this passage. This is how I want us to conclude. There's a very clear warning, but there's also great comfort. And then I want us to think about the two responses I talked about. So there's a very clear warning. Let me put it this way. If you come to Redeemer and you hear sermons, and you hear songs, and you hear prayers, and you go to Bible studies, and you go to community groups, and you go to steak nights and uh, women's events with alliteration, and you get counsel from your pastor, you see the faithful example of other godly men and women in the church, you tear through all the books on the book table, you, you take it all in, all of it. You take it all in. But if it does not soften you, if it doesn't soften you, if it doesn't yield the fruit of love for Christ, faith and trust in Him, heart devotion to Him, holy lives for Him, then what do you have? You have a vineyard with no grapes. 
you have that which is displeasing to God. And in fact, you, you, you'll, you'll find that all of those things actually work to, to make you harder. To make you harder. It's a terrible warning that Jesus gives here. Remember, he's talking to leaders. He's talking to those who are, who are inside the covenant community. They knew enough about the Bible to know that Jesus was talking about them. But their knowledge actually hardened them and sealed their, their judgment. Because they, think. let me put it this way. Because they looked Jesus in the eye and insisted on their own way. They looked Jesus in the eye and said, no. They rejected Jesus. And he stands there and says, in the end, if you persist, it is I who will reject you. It's a very solemn warning that comes in this parable. And because of what's at stake, I, I have to say, maybe some of you are in that position today. And you need to hear this warning. Your ideas, your arguments, your objections, they may seem interesting and intelligent and safe to you. But the warning of this parable, the warning of Jesus in this parable is, do not be fooled. The stone you are rejecting will one day become a stone that crushes you in a way that you can never recover from. But, but, if you come to him now, before that day, that same stone will not crush you but will become a rock of refuge and safety and strength and comfort. And this leads us to see that in this parable, there's not only the strong warning, but there's, there's great comfort and promise precisely because of what it shows us about God the Father and about His Son, the Lord Jesus. Now, I've said it already, but what does God keep doing in this parable? He keeps sending people after you after me, after his people. He keeps sending one servant, then another, then another, then many others, then a son. Why would he do, do you ever, do, I hope you do. I, do you stop and ask yourself in a way that you give time to really meditate on this, why did God do this? Why would God do that for you? Why would he do it for me? Why would he do that for any of us? Certainly it's not because there's... Boy, she's got a lot of promise. I think he can really do it if I just... One more... No, it's nothing in you. Why would God do... Over and over and over, met with hostility and rejection and hatred and spite and hardness of heart. Why does God do this? And why does He even send His Son? He did it because of love. He did it because of love. There's no, there's no other answer. There's no bigger answer than that. 
It was love that moved God to do this, eternal love, unmerited love, redeeming love. As my children, some of yours will know it, but I still have to look at the notes because I can't memorize it, and never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's the love of God on display in this parable, a pursuing love, a love that chases you down to wrestle you down, not to destroy, but to, but to build up and to save. The steadfast love of God. Often we don't see that. When God's pursuing us, we think we, think we want Him to stop. Don't you realize that's the worst thing that could ever happen to you, that God would stop? It's actually your, your only hope and comfort that he would not stop, but keep coming after you. But you know, at some point, he won't. And so Jesus is saying, now, today, today, while it's the day of salvation, respond, listen. So there's great comfort because of the steadfast love of God. But of course, that love is also on display in the flesh in Jesus. You see it here. He knew he would die. He's standing here telling this parable to the people he knows are plotting his murder. The, the murder that would cause him such grief in a few short hours that he would sweat drops of blood, that he would cry out in agony three times on his face in the dirt for God's deliverance, knowing that it could not come. He stands there and he looks in the face of those who would kill him. He knows their plans. He knows the wickedness of their heart. He knows their ancestry. He knows you're uh, the same as them. And yet he, he's there. And he's there willingly. He's there in love to die, to save. He, he's been walking towards Jerusalem. And every step along the way, he knows where he's going. He knows he's going to the cross towards the most excruciating torment that has ever been devised. And I'm not talking about the physical agony of his death. I'm talking about the soul agony that came about when he was separated and his eternal fellowship with his father was broken. And he did it because of love. See, this means there's great comfort. There's great hope and power and strength offered to you in this parable. So here at the end of this series on Elijah and Elisha, here's the question. What do we do with the prophets? What, what are we to do with them? What do we do with the prophets? Well, what we should do is listen to them and follow them as they, they sort of trace this line for us all the way to Jesus. The prophet, of course, the priest, the king, who stands here in Mark chapter 12 in the temple courts in front of the leaders, being hated and rejected just as they were. But it wouldn't be the last time, because in just three days he, he will be back here in the temple courts, standing there on trial, willingly placing himself in their hands so that he could be on the cross the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. 
It's important that he's in the temple. The temple is a place where, where heaven and earth meet. It's the place where God and human beings can meet, can have fellowship. It's a place where sin is dealt with and forgiven and cleansed. It's the place where God stoops down and gathers sinners up into his arms. That's why the temple was important. But a building made with hands could never be all of that. It was always just a symbol that pointed to the reality that now stood in its midst. Jesus, the true temple, and it's only in him. See, this is where the prophets are all pointing. It's only in him that our sins can be paid for and cleansed and defeated. It's only in Jesus that we can know the love of God. And that's what makes your response to Jesus so important. So I said at the beginning, there's only two responses to this parable. You either hate it or you marvel at it. You may hate this parable and hate Jesus for telling it. And you may live your life trying to throw him out of the vineyard, trying to get him out of your life. That's one response. Is it possible that some of you in this room this morning are there, this, are, are there today? That's your response currently. That's the way you're living. You're trying to get Jesus out of your life. You're hating him. You're rejecting him. You may seem pleasant on the outside, but inside, maybe you're raging against God. Maybe you're apathetic and indifferent, but you're against him. You're against him. That's one response. Maybe some of you are there. And the warning of this parable is that if you oppose Jesus, if you resist him, if you ignore his messengers, if you live as if your life is your own, as if God doesn't see, as if God isn't coming, as if God won't act, if you live this way, Jesus' warning is that it will not end well for you. So that's one response. But there's another response. And that's that you could hear this parable. You could hear once again about Jesus this morning. You could respond by saying in the words of this psalm that he quotes, as you look at him, as you look at the Son, this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes, in my eyes. That's another response. That's the language of the psalm. That's the language of the psalm that Jesus quotes. You could marvel at the patience of God who hasn't given up on his people, who hasn't given up on you, but has sent servants, has sent supremely his son, his perfect servant, who by his word and spirit declares the will of God for our salvation so that you can know him, so that you can enter in. You could marvel then at the patience of God. You could marvel at the love of God who would send his own son to die for, for sinners like you and me. You could marvel at the love of God. You could marvel at the power of God who uses the humiliation of the Son of God to bring salvation to millions upon millions of people, eternal, perfect salvation to millions upon millions of people who believe on his name. You can marvel at that power of God. You can marvel at the love of Jesus who willingly laid down his life for his sheep. 
You could marvel at the glory and power and greatness of Jesus, who, though once despised and rejected, is now and forever the centerpiece of God's work in the world. That's another response, isn't it? So you either hate it, or you hear it again and you marvel. So, what about you? How do you respond? That's the question that Jesus puts to all of us this morning. Will we resist him? Or will we marvel, not only now, but forever and ever and ever? Let's pray.